really just to remind us that what we're trying to do in these studies is to um, is to try and understand the fact that the Bible only has one story. And that one story is, is repeated right through in, in many different ways, sometimes in narrative, but often in types and symbols and shadows. But the Bible is one book, one message. It doesn't say different things in different places. Um, and if there's anything that we can, that I really want us to get out of this series is, is just to understand that the way to, the way that we get benefit from this Bible is not to approach it as a kind of self-help guide, as you know, we're feeling low or we have a problem in life um, where we need to go to the Bible and get some help. But the Bible will help you if you treat it like that. There are other books you can go for that if you want. The Bible is about Christ, it's about the plan of salvation, it's about God. And it's about one revelation of God. And any help that we get from it, in terms of indirect help, is from just knowing and just worshipping God for the fact that this is, is the Word of God and it's an absolute miracle how um, different authors, sometimes hundreds, even thousands of years apart, who knew nothing about each other and who even wrote in different ways. Sometimes a poet is saying the same thing as a, as a prophet, A psalmist is saying the same thing as, as, a, as a scribe that is recording the history of Israel. They knew nothing about each other, have no connection, and yet the whole Bible is witness to the fact that there is only one author, the author being the Holy Spirit, and he inspired different authors uh, throughout the millennia. And it is one story, told in different ways. Uh, and I hope that <clears throat> this series will at least help us to approach the Bible in that way. And so we've been um, tracing that progressive revelation, right from that tiny seed, that shadowy um, introduction of the Gospel in the Garden of Eden, uh, and we've noted how, and we'll see this as we go on, how that the light of God's revelation grows brighter and brighter the nearer we get to Christ. And, and as we approach Noah and the story of Noah, then there's a, there's a noticeable um, increase of the luminosity, if you like, of God's revelation. If you've ever had one of those torches where you, can, um, you have different settings. You can have a low setting that saves a lot of batteries. And that. Then you can put it on to maximum and you can see for seemingly miles away. Well, I wouldn't say 
Noah, the story of Noah is the highest setting yet, but it's certainly a step up from the lowest setting. You're getting more light, you're getting more uh, revelation. And I just want to take some time just to soak in and appreciate the revelation that we get um, <clears throat> from the revelation of God through this flood story. But like I said at the beginning, I just want to just to backtrack a, a little bit to last time because if you remember we were thinking about the people of God, what I call the city of God, um, these believers, this remnant, who are these worshipping at these very basic altars and we started to think about what type of people they must have been and we noted all sorts of comparison to, to us as the church today, we noted many examples where we can learn a lot from them. And we got to the point where we have noted that they were called to be priests, they were called to be witnesses, martyrs, um, and then uh, we ran out of time. But I just wanted to, 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 to add the point that as well as being called to be priests and, and martyrs, Certain individuals amongst them were called to be prophets. And that those individuals, most notably, were Enoch and Noah. They were the two people in this community of Sapphites, the redeemed, the elect people of God, who had been called to be prophets. Um, and they had a, a particular ministry of witnessing to God, but also warning of the judgment, the flood judgment that was to come. Now Enoch, uh, we read about just now, didn't we, in, in um, our reading, chapter 5 and uh, verse First mentioned in verse 21 and then goes on to verse 24. Enoch is mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the book of Jude. And it says in um, verses 14 and 15 of Jude that Enoch prophesied of the coming judgment of the flood. Now we don't know exactly how long before he made that prophecy but again it's, it's a verification of the, the truth of God's word that these prophecies come true and it says in Jude that in, in verses 14 and 15 it says and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying behold the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now the remarkable thing about those words is that those words are too expansive of a description 
just to be talking about the flood. Um, in the flood, the Lord did not come with 10,000 of his saints. What is happening here is that Enoch in his prophecy of the flood is, is looking beyond, in the spirit beyond the flood, to the second coming of Christ. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you think of how ancient, is only the seventh from Adam, and yet he's having a vision of the second coming of Christ, which we are still awaiting. Um, and that's a very important principle which we need to hold on to as we try to understand how the scripture uses or describes the flood judgment. Because when the scripture talks of the flood, it never limits itself just to the flood. It bounces off it as a, like a kind of springboard to encapsulate the final judgment, the judgment that will come at the second coming of Christ. And then Noah, we come on to Noah as this other prophet who we're going to concentrate on. And Noah, according to the second epistle of Peter, was a herald of righteousness to his generation. Um, he was a prophet. It says in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, um, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, Noah, we need to understand, was a prophet, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And both Enoch and Noah, in chapter 5, verses 22 and 24 of Genesis 5, they're both said to have walked with God. Well, Genesis 5, 22 and 24 in relation to Enoch. In chapter 6, verse 9, in relation to Noah. And Genesis 5, 22 says, And Enoch walked with God after he began Methuselah 300 years. In verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in relation to Noah, chapter 6, verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's interesting, isn't it? Both these prophets have the same. Um, Description made of them as walking with God. So their lives, there was something about their lives which matched their office. Something about their lives which matched their message. And that's a very important thing for us, isn't it? We, I, mean, we, I think we said these things a bit in prayer tonight. It's absolutely no use to us preaching, is it? Either like this, like I am, or um, 
witnessing in the street or with our families, if what we are and what we say are two different things. There's no authenticity in that, is there? I know, I know we all fail and we're bound to fail to some degree. But if there's no marrying up between our message and the way we live, then there's something very, very false and wrong. But Noah and Enoch are said to have walked with God. Their lives were marked by this intimate walking. If you walk with someone, you're in communion with them, you're in step with them. If you go for a walk with somebody in the countryside and, you know, and you're, you're walking off twice as fast as they are or, or they're twice as fast to you, you're not walking with them, are you? You're, you, know, you can't talk, you can't commune, you have to walk side by side, you have to be in step. And that's how our walk with God has to be. Um, we need to learn to walk. It's, it's the first thing, one of the first things of the baby. The baby has to learn. They'll, they'll bash their nose a few times and they'll knock their head on the piano stool a few times, but they'll soon they'll get the hang of, of walking. And we have to learn to walk with God. And part of walking with God is having that um, authenticity about our lives. And the target audience for both of these prophets, Enoch and Noah, was the un ungodly world. That was their target audience. It wasn't a friendly audience. It wasn't an audience which gave them a round of applause after they preached righteousness to them. And it's not for us either, we know that on a Saturday, don't we? We've not heard a round of applause yet. Um, the ungodly world is our congregation. Slightly different, Enoch and Noah were slightly different, and the patriarchs were slightly different to the Israelite prophets, because their main audience was to people that were already in the covenant. Not exclusively, but mostly they preached to um, God's people, often rebellious God's people. But Enoch and Noah were not talking to God's people, they were talking, they were preaching to the world, the ungodly world. And they had to warn and rebuke, and they proclaimed a, div a coming divine judgment. That was their message, but it wasn't all of their message. They also offered deliverance from judgment through repentance. They warned of God's curse, but they offered God's blessing. And that's our, our mission too, isn't it? We, we, mustn't, we must get the balance between both. I'm not saying in every single sermon or in every, sometimes we'll preach the law exclusively in one conversation or one message. But over time we need to balance it out. We offer God's curse and we offer 
And we warn of God's curse and we offer God's salvation. But they, like we today, they had to endure, Jude says, they had to endure hard speeches. People spoke against them in a hard way, through hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken. Jude 15. You know, we're not necessarily going to be spoken well of. They did not speak well of Enoch, they did not speak well of Noah. They spoke hard against them. And yet they continued to preach the message. They prophesied that the Lord would come. In Enoch's case, he prophesied that they would, the Lord would come with 10,000 of his saints. As I say, he was encompassing both the flood judgment and the second coming of Christ. He was talking of a universal judgment. Because the ungodly, the ungodly who rejected Enoch's message and rejected Enoch's warning would find that the day of the Lord would come. The same with Noah. He warned that the flood would come. That the day of the Lord would come. And that it would come as darkness and it would come as death. But they also preached the promise of deliverance for those who repented. So few did repent, but they still preached it. They, they offered repentance. And in Enoch's case, he was delivered from death personally by a translation into heaven. His feet literally left the earth and he went into heaven. And this was God's validation of, of the message. That was the point of that. It wasn't so much about him as an individual. I mean, it was. But the whole point of that translation, that ascension from earth to heaven, was God saying, this, is a, this prophecy of the flood judgment and of the further judgment to come is true. And God validated his word just as he validated the word of Christ when Christ rose again and ascended into heaven. That was Christ's, uh, God's um, validation of his son and of his mission. But like many, not many, most, vast majority today, They failed. The world failed to respond to the prophet's call. Noah was a herald of righteousness in the face of the ungodly. But eventually, year by year, people refused mercy. They neglected to repent and eventually lawlessness filled the earth and this is what's happening today God will not always strive with man we'll come on to that verse a bit later evil is not um, sin and evil has a life of its own it never remains 
level, it never remains static, it increases in tempo. And what happens here in the flood is that sin reaches such a pitch, such a level, that God intervenes, and that is exactly what will happen prior to the second coming. Lawlessness filled the earth. And in chapter 6 and verse 3 of Genesis, it says this, what this, uh, these words, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And then in verse 5 of chapter 6 it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 13 it says, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold I will destroy them. With the earth. You see, what has happened is what I've just said. God now um, gives an assessment, a judgment about the state of the earth, that it has now reached such, such an antichrist stage that final judgment now is very near. There's been a great apostasy. I mean, there are only eight people saved. And although it's not explicit in the text, it's fair to assume that two things. One, that there was a great apostasy amongst God's people, and also that there was great persecution of God's people. A great turning away occurred in the pre-flood world, and God intervened. The world perished, and only a remnant of God's people was, were redeemed. And it will be the same again at the second coming of Christ. Persecution and apostasy. Jesus said, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? And sin, the sin has... now reach such a fever pitch that the flood judgment is imminent. And this is really the background to the story of Noah and the flood. Just looking back again at verses 5 and 7. Just note the extreme wickedness reached at the end of, end of the world. This was the end of the world. That world, it's not the end of this world, but it was the end of the old world. First of all, we read that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, verse 5. There was an intensity, the intensity of evil was extreme, it was great in the earth and it had reached as it were the ends of the earth there was a great reach and depth 
of sin and wickedness. And then every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, of man's heart, every imagination of the thoughts of his you see, sin is sin has an inwardness, it's not all it's not just external, it's internal. And every internal thought of man's heart inwardly was evil. And that's the state of, of a, that's what sin can do to a human life. And then it says his heart was only evil. Only evil. And that there's something there about the absolute sway of evil excluding everything that was good. Sin can, sin can be like a demon. It can be like being possessed if you let it run wild in your life. It can, it can destroy any good in you. It can, it can possess you like a, almost like a demon possesses a, a human life. And this was how evil people had become. People's hearts were only evil. And all this is a pattern of, of what will, it will be like in the world before the second coming of Christ. The, the first judgment, the flood judgment, is a type of the second coming of Christ, but it's simply. And then lastly it says, his heart was only evil continually. Sin was habitual, it was continuous. This continuous working of evil all of the time. And that's how the world was then. And that's why the f you could almost hear the rumblings of the, of the flood beginning to start because it was now time. The world was ripe for judgment. And there was no warning and warning saying, flee from the wrath to come. You cannot live like this. You cannot sin like this without consequence. And that's our message too, isn't it? And yet, in the church today, is there any sense, any sense of that warning? Is there, the, is there that voice in the wilderness that we receive from John the Baptist? Is there, is there the prophet's call, the prophet's warning? I don't hear it. And yet that's such a central part of, of what our job is as, as a Christian church, is to warn. There's a judgment coming. But there's a way of deliverance. There's a, through repentance, you can be saved. There's a gospel. So, <clears throat> the world was ripe for judgment. And that's really the background um, to, to where we, we now pick up the, the story of, <clears throat> of Noah. And uh, there are two very general points I just want to make. 
before we begin, because um, I haven't really begun yet, um, before we begin on this, this aspect of God's revelation. The first general point I want to make is the importance the Holy Spirit has given to this story of the flood. This single flood event is covered from chapter 6, verse 9, to chapter 8, verse 22. Now that is, the sim- is similar, it is a similar amount of coverage as all the time from Adam to Noah, which was from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 8. And that could have been, for all we know, and I personally think, really the way I read Peter, that could have been many thousands of years. And yet, this one story of the flood is given more or less the same amount of airtime. And then the story from Noah to Abraham is from chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 26. So again, a similar amount. So we're not, we, we have to take note of the fact that this story is of huge importance. And uh, there, there are other, I'm not covering the, um, the literary structure of Genesis at all in this series, but if we were to do so, we would see that this flood story, in terms of the, the literary structure of the triads and the chiasms in Genesis, occupies a peak, a climax of, of the first liter- literary triad. So it's got all sorts of, even from a literary point of view, it's really central and important. But the second thing, I want to say is, is the, and I think this is the reason it's given so much space is that this flood story prefigures major aspects of the second coming of Christ it prefigures major aspects of redemptive judgment of the cosmic recreation the new heavens and the new earth and the perfecting the kingdom of God. Now, that's really what I want to go through in, in tonight. But that's the importance of this story. It goes way beyond itself. It becomes a springboard for many amazing and central teachings in the Bible. And so for these and many other reasons, it's important that we as Christians recognise the flood story as a genuine historical event. Now why do I say that? Because for some reason this is the one story that Christians seem to struggle with. They they seem to struggle often with believing that this is real history. It may be the way it's taught sometimes if you've been brought up in Sunday school it can be trivialised and be sort of childlike uh, 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 and um, 
But you meet so many Christians who struggle to accept that this is real history. But what I want to say is that Christ and the epistles, particularly Peter, reference the, the story of Noah in a, in, 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 a, in a way which demonstrates that this is absolutely real and historical. And we have no right as the church to allegorise it or to say, well, it was just a local flood and not a worldwide flood, as people seem to say often. Well, what right have we to change what the Bible says? Because there's no hint anywhere of any kind of allegorical meaning. Now, there are parts of the Bible which are, you could say, are um, allegorical, but it's obvious when it's allegorical, and it's obvious when it's not allegorical. And Jesus spoke of the flood in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, and in Luke 17, verses 26 to 27. And he directly compared the events of the flood judgment and the flood deliverance with the days of the Son of Man. And I'll just give you one of those verses. Just, just listen to this and see if there's any hint of this not being a real event. This is Jesus, Luke 17, verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, he's talking there in historical terms, isn't he? And the Apostle Peter also speaks in very historical terms of the flood in 1 Peter 3.20, 2 Peter 2.5, and 2 Peter 3.6. And he also emphasises the prefiguring or the typological nature of those events. And I'll give you one example, 2 Peter 3, verse 6 and 7, where he writes, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So again, he's speaking there very much in terms of the flood as happening in real history, but also crucially being a type of the second coming of Christ. And I know all of you believe in the I'm no doubt about that, but I'm saying this for the more wider audience that might listen on YouTube because this is a real problem. Christians um, changing key biblical texts from history to, to myth. Now, I could talk about myth because myth doesn't always mean it's not. In fact, the real meaning of myth does not mean it's not historical, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But many people think of myth 
as meaning it never happened, that it's just a story. This really happened. This is salvation history, which prefigures the future, a future saving act of God. And so, I just say that. Not so much for us, because I know we all believe it. So it's an historical event. But secondly, I want us to, to realise that this historical event has a much deeper, has a deeper spiritual reality. And um, the deeper spiritual reality is Genesis 3.15, which we always go back to, we always probably will. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent. The spiritual struggle below the surface of this story is, is the same deeper spiritual reality, reality as underlies all the history of redemption. And so, the main theme of Genesis 4 and Genesis 6 and following is this struggle between Satan and the Messiah, God's people and the people of the enemy, Satan. And here we come across, again, the increasing case of, of this rebellion against God, this Rebelling against God's rule, man shaking his fist against heaven. The children of a serpent hate God's children, and that's the same today. And we fool ourselves if we think it's any different today. And it's it's a waste of time. Us as a church, as the church, I should say, trying to be attractive to the world. To try and entice them in with um, interesting, entertaining activities. The world, if, if we're truly the church, if we truly are the seed of the woman, we will be hated. We can't attract them. And this hatred intensified and reached a, clim a climax as we've already studied, under these demonic kings who, who called themselves gods. They claimed they were the sons of gods. The sons of God. And the remnant people of Noah's household were on the verge of being driven off the face of the earth. Only eight were left. The hope of salvation lay, can you believe, in eight souls. And it was vital that God secured the hope of man's salvation into the future until Messiah came. And that's why God had to act now, or then, I should say. Only eight were left. Either through apostasy or persecution, I think probably a combination of both. A tiny remnant was left. And the seed of the serpent were trying to destroy that tiny remnant. 
And if they had been destroyed, then the, the hope of Genesis 3.15 would be lost forever. Well, of course, we know it would never have been. But, but that's, that's what would have happened if God had not intervened. And Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, when he writes, When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Only eight souls were saved by water. See, we, we think in terms of them being saved from the water because we think the flood, they were saved from the flood. No, the flood was the saving aspect. If God hadn't sent the flood, then those eight souls would have been destroyed by God's enemy. It was the judgment of God, which is judgment for God's enemy and it's salvation for God's people. That's always the way. They were saved by water. And it was only through the long-suffering of God, through the principle of common grace, which we will need to come back to at some point, that the serpent's seed even had a temporary place on earth. But they were not willing to share the earth with God's people. God was patient, he was not, he was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But now... In this critical time where only eight were left. And in the face of man's unwillingness to share the earth with God's people in common grace, the flood had to come. It was time for the judge of all the earth to come quickly before the seed of the woman was extinguished. And again, this is a, a pattern, a prefiguration for the consummation of the world that now is, our world. God the Father, try and get your head around this. God the Father has a precise day set, even a precise hour set in time, in future history, and it will be the final day of the Lord. This world will have a final day. There will be a last day. And this final day, this day of the Lord, is patterned on the eschatology of the world that then was. The old world. Does that make sense? The last day of our world is patterned on the last day of that world. And that's why the Holy Spirit gives so much airtime to this story and why we need to spend a bit of time now in the next perhaps couple of occasions. Jesus said in Matthew 24, <clears throat> verse 36 and 37, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Dear friends, we need um, we need to be men and women, boys and girls who 
We know the times. We need to be prepared. We need to be watching and waiting and preaching and warning. Because this, this is not a joke. We know the second coming will happen because the first judgment of the flood did happen. We know God does this. He's done it before. He has ended the world before. It won't end it in the same way. It'll be through fire next time. But God has set a day and that day will come. And our job as Christians is personally to make sure we are ready we are saved, that we're walking. It's not just about being saved, it's about being obedient. We don't want Christ to come and to be, as John says, to be ashamed in his presence. It's possible to be saved as by fire, to, to be saved at the last day, but to be shamed. To stand before God knowing that we've, we've lived a, a worldly, fleshly Christian life. And we could have done so much more. We could have been so much more obedient and we'll be ashamed of his coming. But we want to be amongst those who will stand before God and to hear his voice. Saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your rest. That's what I want to hear. And we'll need to suffer some pain in this life but in comparison to the glory, as Paul says, that will come on. It's, 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 it's not worth talking about. Not worth talking about. So, dear friends, this, we haven't gone very far. And that's probably a good place to stop. But let us um, dwell on these things. Um, God this world is in God's hands and we are called to preach a very important message, an old message in fact, a very ancient message, the message of Enoch, the message of Noah, the message of the gospel and may we be faithful in our generation. Amen. Amen.